Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of TP to TP, that's the podcast with Tom Polos. We have an amazing program for you guys today. Former Los Angeles mayoral candidate Emmanuel Pleitez joins me for a nice long chat. Also, a guy from my apartment complex claims he's going to drop by. I'll believe it when I see it. Hopefully you guys will hear it. You're listening to the podcast with Tom Polos, a.k.a. TP with TP. All right, welcome back to TP with TP. I am here with Emmanuel Pleitez, former and hopefully future Los Angeles mayoral candidate. Emmanuel, welcome on the program. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. First, I want to say congratulations on a very hard-fought grassroots campaign. And I want to ask you first, what did you learn about Los Angeles during this mayoral run? And what did you learn about yourself? You know, a lot of people think that Los Angeles is is very fragmented, neighborhood by neighborhood, region by region, you know, ethnicity by ethnicity, race. And, it, you know, to some degree, it is separated. However, there's a common thread in Angelinos that that they share in that their families or themselves have come to LA for a better life. For the, the American dream that people speak about is really the Angelino dream uh, to a large extent because we do have a city that people come from all over the country and the world to this city. The final frontier. Exactly, for, the, for, for that final, for a better life. And, yeah. and so I found that that, that was a, a, an, an amazing thing to kind of tap into. There's an entrepreneurial spirit, a creative spirit. There are people that they just want to do things to improve not just their own lives, but the lives around them. And I found that fascinating. Now, it is a city that has very wealthy areas, but also very poor areas. And, and so there is a division. But I, but I felt that I learned a little bit about that common thread that makes us really Angelinos. And I think that there, there brings so much potential uh, if we all actually work together and, and utilize that desire, that, that, um, that entrepreneurial spirit to make this city better. Now you've gone on from this great race that you've run and have endorsed frontrunner Eric Garcetti for mayor. Yes. Why do you believe Eric Garcetti is the next best thing to you, to Emmanuel Pleitez? Sure. Well, let me take a step back. I, I think one thing that was a theme in our campaign was the, the point of making sure your voice counts making sure you, you vote, making sure you're engaged in your community. And to that end, when I uh, did not make the runoff election, it was important for me to make my voice count and not wait and make sure that I supported one person over the other. And so when you look at Eric Garcetti and Wendy Grohl, I actually made sure that, that I made it a very thoughtful process over the about a week and change and made sure that my supporters, my staff, my team all were involved in, in a very active, lively debate. And, you know, it's Eric Garcetti and Wendy Grew are both public servants that, that, that care about LA. However, when I looked at the issues and I looked at who was going to be better positioned to address the most difficult issues, whether it's pension reform, uh, getting LA working again, bringing business back, uh, teaching coding in high school, things like that, that, that I feel was looking in, in a, uh, be, having a more forward-looking approach to LA, Eric Garcetti was a better candidate for that. Now, when you endorse him, are you going to be actively campaigning Absolutely. for him? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, again, part of the same thing. You don't just endorse and say, I support someone. You actually I wash campaign. my hands of it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, you campaign because you got to make your vote count. And so now, 
My job is to reach out to every single one of my supporters, every single voter that we identified as a supporter of mine and, and, and my campaign, and, and let them know what I'm doing and let them know why. Because now it's time to get behind Eric Garcetti so that he can be our next mayor and so that we can address the most difficult issues in L.A. Now, you've campaigned and you've worked for many political figures in the past. Secretary of State John Kerry, to President Obama, to the former or going to be former mayor of Los Angeles now. What have you learned from them as you sort of came out of the sort of the weeds to become a politician this year? What did you learn from them as you went into this race and how has that helped you become the candidate you were and the person you are? Sure. I've taken a little bit from, from everyone I've worked with and even President Obama, uh, I worked with during the Obama administration, I worked with Paul Volcker, one of the foremost economic minds in, in the world right now. I worked with Austin Goolsby, one of the top up-and-coming eco- economists, who ended up being the chief economist of the president. And I've learned a lot from people like him. I've learned a lot from people like Dolores Huerta as well. And, and just being able to work with her and see her being an activist, even though she's 80-plus years old. <laughs> and you know, from Antonio to John Kerry to Hillary Clinton, I, I've been able to at a at a young age have access to that type of power decision making uh, ability to move things and get things done and i think i've taken more of a there's always going to be different points of view but the people that are the most effective are the ones that move things and actually solve problems versus just give great speeches versus you know just be a great negotiator um, it's the people that actually get things done. And I think from every single one of those people that I got to work with, I've taken a little nugget of their wisdom, of their experiences, so that I'm a better leader that is not skewed to one way or another. It's that I'm geared to solve problems. And the same goes with my private sector experience. I mean, working at McKinsey and Company, Goldman Sachs, Spokio, an internet company, you know, as an executive there, I mean, I've, I've been very lucky to have a multitude of experiences that all lend themselves to helping me be able to address solving problems. Is there, just a follow-up, is there a leader, past or present, political or business, that you say you are most like or you most aspire to be like? There's not one person. It's not one person. And Emmanuel is a puzzle. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I, I, I would love for there to be one person, but there's not. I would say when, you know, when I was asked that in actually one of the candidate forums, and in retrospect, I feel that I would reiterate that, is that um, Dolores Huerta, again, being 80-plus years old and still being an activist, and I kind of want to try to embody that long-term activism, uh, that's that type of spirit in, in myself and how I'm a leader. Then I look at Paul Volcker, who's also 80-plus years old and is still opining on economic policy, is still being an activist in the halls of Congress around the world. Uh, and then I look at people like, say, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who founded Google with a philosophy of do no evil. Now, whether you like what Google's done or not, they've built an amazing company and they've tried their best to try to maintain that ethos, that culture. And, and they've broken a lot of barriers in terms of technology, in terms of you know, democratizing resources for people. And I think that's important. So I kind of see myself as an amalgamation of kind of that long-term activist, the challenger in the economic space, to technology innovation and not being afraid to do it when you're young and all and having some ethos some culture that is about not being evil about just trying to be a good person and solving problems well we love google that's how people found our show <laughs> so we appreciate that yeah. and, and, and and every day google's algorithm is getting better so they could find your show even better <laughs> that's what we like to hear and you have a lot of like you mentioned business and tech experience yourself um i'm sure you've learned a little bit of strategy from the political figures we've mentioned but 
you are also the chief strategy officer of Spokio. Mm-hmm. How has that helped you as a strategist help form your political strategy? I've learned that, well, I think I'll take a step back because even in the technology company, I applied some of my political skills there to not just understand how to build a product that's good for a consumer, but also how to make the company have a better, better morale, uh, better function, better training, kind of thinking of the personnel and, and how you got to build a team to the managing of multiple stakeholders. Uh, and, um, you know, you've got you to understand power. you got to understand that power comes with either a lot of money or a lot of people. <laughs> and if you know how to manage those two elements, then you can gain more and more influence to get whatever agenda dr- driven. And and at Spokio as a chief strategy officer, I was able to learn about the more tactical things in technology from search engine optimization, search engine marketing, to what everyday consumers, how they think and what they do online and what they some sometimes have an impulse to press, you know, contribute or submit mm-hmm. or pay. And I think those are elements that are important as as I ran for office that I understood a little bit better, I understood a little bit better the consumer behavior online, and I think the politics thinks of consumer behavior offline and how they make decisions at the, at the polls. And my campaign kind of embodied the understanding of the old school political tactics with new school social media, you know, search engine optimization, data aggregation and targeting that allowed my campaign to be more innovative, more forward-thinking, and not uh, very, very much a more integrated approach where my campaign was more personal. My organizers thought of themselves not just as organizers, but as content creators. Uh, and, and I see myself as a leader, whatever organization I'm in or whatever company I'm in, to try to integrate all those different skill sets and, and those different ways of thinking so that we, at the end of the day, create better products that address people in the right way and that you're building more and more influence through either more money or more people. I really like that. Uh, power comes from more money or more people. I'm paraphrasing, I guess. Mm-hmm. But sure. would you um, say with the political process you just went through that that was something you learned or something you've already known? Or how frustrating is that knowing you have such passion behind your campaign, but at the end of the day, dollars might decide it? It's the reality. Sad reality. You know, unless we go to public financing of campaigns, that's that's always going to be an issue, and that's just the 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 world we live in. And and um, you know, I don't know if it'll ever actually change. There could be a movement towards public financing of campaigns. However, because you know what you know, then you got to understand. Okay, well, then I got to figure out how to raise money. the game. At the same time, I want to challenge the establishment. I want to challenge that status quo. And what I did in my campaign, I, I essentially, you know, my dollars per vote was a much better result versus the other campaigns because of how efficient we were. So I think there is a way to do it with less money. You just have to have just enough money to compete. And so in the long run, you know, if I run again, then I, you know, I, I will continue being able to build my capacity to raise money, but I'll also be able to build my capacity to execute on a campaign strategy in a better way. And, and, uh, and you know, I'll be ready for it. So. You know, over time, you just continue building and building. And, and what I've always maintained, and especially 20 mentees of mine, I've said, look, um, try to keep your independence in terms of thought and do not allow yourself to get influenced so that you build your own way of thinking and you are a better leader because people will follow you if you're more independent, if you're more thoughtful. And, and that's what I want to maintain, you know, as I move forward as a leader. 
on that same subject matter of independence of thought and influence, you have an independent thought from other candidates in the campaign for the legalization and taxation of marijuana. Mm-hmm. Why do you believe this, and how do you believe the marijuana issue divides generations, and is this a dialogue we can even have, or is it something that's still so suffocating on certain people because the drug, for better or worse, holds a certain stigma to it? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, there are a lot of things that hold stigma. I mean, mental health holds a stigma, and we don't address mental health issues, and, and we think of them as a luxury healthcare service then instead of a, a core part of a you know, robust healthcare platform. You know, marijuana is, is, is a drug that, quite frankly, even though it's illegal, kids can get it on the street if they want it. And growing up, I knew how to get it. I knew how my friends got it. It, it wasn't something that, whether legal or le- illegal, that wasn't what held people back from getting it. It was education levels. It was access uh, in general. And for me, this combines my kind of private sector open markets type of thinking with also social justice because at the end of the day these illegal underground markets are not helpful to our neighborhoods especially our poorest neighborhoods they quite frankly finance violence so if we continue with the status quo violence will continue to get financed by the fact that marijuana is illegal and of course a bunch of other things but but that is an element of it so if i can cut that you know disrupt that market and make it legal, but still you've got community input and you figure out you know, what, you know, where exactly it, you know, the access to this legal marijuana is. You know, we can still figure that out, but, but if it's just illegal, we'll continue financing this black market and, and well, we'll, we'll continue financing um, violence on our streets, and, and I'm against that. Do you think it's a discussion that needs to be breached with older generations? Because Absolutely. perhaps younger generations understand it better, or maybe there's something that young people get that older people think younger people don't get where do you think the divide well, I think is? my argument is is not a generational one I think too many times the movement to legalize or the movement against legalization ends up being a generational one but I don't think it should be and you know if you heard any of the debates during the mayoral election the mayoral race I, I was the only one that was talking about it the way I just talked about it so, it, and when I talk about it in that manner to older folks, uh, to people in wealthy areas and in poor areas, people get it because they, they realize it exists, but, but too many times we create a generational argument uh, and, and that usually just doesn't work because people make their decisions either on something that hits the pocketbook or on moral issues. And when you, you know, you can't, you can't make an argument on both, then one wins over the other and then you create this divisiveness within our society. Los Angeles is a city that loves sports. Mm-hmm. Los Angeles is also a city that lacks a pro football team. Yes. Even though USC is very close to a pro football team. <laughs> uh, Except when they play Stanford <laughs> University. <laughs> hey, well, we're going to cut that out. No. Um, how much should the government care about the public interest in a downtown stadium? And how much money, if any, should the taxpayers put toward a proposed stadium? Should we not care what the populace thinks? How do you balance what the populace wants as far as public finance? Just like any issue, just like when we talk about marijuana or any other issue, there's always a public education element of it. And I think most people don't realize that a lot of cities end up losing a lot of money when they try to finance these stadiums for football teams. And, you know, some people are okay with that, some people are not, but I think people need to understand that and they don't understand it. 
So in this case, I, I want a football team just as much as anyone else. But I also think that too many times the penchant to want a football team because it is a popular public, you know, public opinion thing, we end up forgetting the cost side. We end up forgetting to actually build a financial model to actually understand how much it's going to cost us. And we just try to get it at all costs, which I think is the wrong approach. And I think there, there are there is a way to get a football team without it being on the backs of taxpayers. And we just need to figure that out. People want to be in LA. People want to come to LA. Owner, you know, Owners of sports teams want to come to them because we have a huge market. And I think we just need to do something where politicians don't just bend over backwards for developers or for you know big businesses that know that they're going to get a bunch of tax write-offs or roll out the red carpet so they get this done on the backs of taxpayers. Uh, we need to be more thoughtful about this, figure out how to bring a football team, which we can, without it having to be a huge uh, hurt, you know, huge thing that hurts our, our taxpayers in LA. Dropping out of high school has sadly become commonplace for many students. Mm-hmm. That said, to a Los Angeles High School alum, Woodrow Wilson. Yes. What is the incentive for students to stay in school, high school or college, when for many of them there are no jobs waiting for them once they re- reach that diploma? Look, the biggest determinant of success in high school is, or in success in life really, is parent education levels. So I, I think it's less about, you, you. we can try to make the case for getting a high school diploma and then getting a college diploma, and we should, but we also need to be thinking about this in a more holistic way where we're thinking about parent education levels as well. And we're thinking about educational outlets for parents. Education should be family oriented and education shouldn't just be about the seven hours of the school day in in your high school. It should be about creating more educational opportunities outside of the classroom on the weekends for the whole family. And those are the things that that the government should be investing in. And that's, if we take that more holistic approach, that's how we will target the high school dropout rate. Everything else that we've been doing is very piecemeal. It's like, okay, maybe we change the curriculum. Maybe we think about better teachers, which, yes, we should, but that's not it. It's not the only thing. Uh, we need to think, yes, better teachers. Yes, better administrators. Yes, a curriculum that makes sense. Yes, let's align the curriculum with skills that you need to get jobs. All that stuff makes sense. But you can do all that, and if you still have poor education levels in the community of the parents, you're still going to have a lack of access, a lack of desire, a lack of understanding, a lack of seeing what success looks like for young people. Therefore, even if you offer them the, you know, the best uh, type of curriculum and teacher, sometimes a kid may still drop out because they can't see anyone that's been successful. An example, as a case in point here, is my, my little cousin, who is a senior in high school. She, aside from me, my wife, and my sister, she didn't know anyone else that went to college. And she's lucky that she has me, my wife, and my sister. Most of her peers in high school didn't even have that. So you know, how are you going to make the case to someone to go to college when they don't have anyone they know that ever, that ever went to college or that's graduated from college? And that, I mean, that's, that's a sad reality. And so we need to figure out how to create more role models, get parents to also be learning at the same time so that people understand more of the value of education and they have a, their own self-desire to want to be successful in college. And you suggest to do that through community building and teaming up with you need, individuals we need within the, the group. So like you said, people look to people that are successful. And mm-hmm. so is the government involved in that? So or more, that... more mentorship and guidance and more learning opportunities. 
we do not have, we, we have very few learning opportunities except for the, the hours inside of a classroom. Should they be longer? Should school hours be longer? Absolutely. We absolutely need to look at that. But, you know, those are, those are fights that you have with, with the school district curriculum. I want to go around that. I just want to say let's offer more after-school programs, just after-night programs, evening programs, weekend programs. Um, those are all, all these things can be offered today, not just by the public sector, but by the private sector as well. You know, let's incentivize the private sector so they have access to talent, access to consumers, but at the same time subsidize education. Let's also tap into the volunteerism that exists in the city of LA and as well as the rest of the country. So people want to teach, want to teach the skills that they want. I mean, there's, you know, from attorneys to business executives to, you know, marketing folks to people that have different skills to journalists that would be open to sharing their skill set if they just had the opportunity to do it, if they just had the venue. You know, wouldn't it be cool to, you know, just go on LACity.org and say, this is my skill, I want to teach it. Where can I teach it? And you just put that in and all of a sudden the city says, here, go here on this date. All of a sudden, there's a class, and you may just teach five kids, maybe ten kids, maybe maybe a couple parents. But that's value that you just created out of nothing, out of just a system that we could have implemented today. So those are the things that need to be that need to be done. And so we so at the end of the day, it's more learning opportunities, and more um, models, more role models for young people that are going through the system, so that they can see what success looks like if they actually graduate from high school and get a, and get a college diploma. What do you think the Los Angeles mayor or the Los Angeles city government can do to help the homeless? And what can citizens of Los Angeles do to help? Sadly, it's, it's the issue that um, is at the bottom of the barrel in terms of thinking about it, and there's very little lobby power there. Uh, and it goes for a lot of issues like that that, that, are, that hit the most underserved populations, the most uh, um, disenfranchised folks in our society. In particular with homeless, we need to uh, very obviously increase the amount of beds, increase the amount of shelter for homeless. And then from there, have deep intervention into the lives of these homeless people so that they can have re-entry programs from mental health services. Some of them may just need that bed and some job training and they can get right back on their feet and get back into society and contribute. So every homeless person is unique and different, has a different story, but we need the beds and then we need the re-entry programs and for the ones that are ready, the job training so that they can actually get back into society and, and, and have that, that dignity back in their life or they feel they're contributing to something. You have such a compelling balance that we keep bringing back your business experience and your political savvy. With the homelessness issue, we try to always say the free market, privatization, that can help but where is something like that? What is there? Is there an incentive for a company to come in and try to help the homeless, or is that something the government just has to take on and bite the bullet? It it depends how you structure it. There's always an opportunity for the private sector to step in. You got the private sector varies, right? You either have consumer-driven companies or enterprise-driven companies, you, and you have executives or companies that want access and some that, and, that don't, and you always want to invite them to help with a problem. Most companies either have some budget or some desire to just be helpful as citizens of their communities. Usually they just don't get asked. I mean, how many companies is the mayor asking, you know, a day, a week to help with the city? That's number one, okay? That's on a kind of goodwill element. The other thing is, you know, just on, on marketing, you know, the fact that they could put their name on something, I don't mind if a company puts their name on something if they're paying for it. 
it's advertising. It's already what happens in, in this day and age. So how do we allow that to subsidize social service programs? That's another element to look at. Uh, and then lastly, you need to look at a kind of recruiting HR piece. I, I at times would say the city of LA should be the HR department of this area, of the greater LA area, it should be the HR department of enterprises. So businesses should have less, uh, should have, should not have as hard of a time trying to find people to work for their companies. And so the, the city of LA can create these social services that help people get back on their feet and get back into the workforce and companies should be willing to pay for that because they want talent and they want people to work for their companies. So it's all about how you structure it. And that's where my private sector experience with understanding public policy lends itself and goes hands in hand. While most people just say, I just need to tax more people and then build more things and <laughs> go to social services. And it's and they don't they can't connect the dots. You gotta find everyone's interest and then how do you use that so that it actually works for good. Because at the end of the day, if people, if there are jobs and people are working, there's going to be a functioning society, an economy that's growing, and we're going to be fine. Um, but when you don't have that, then you have all these issues, and then you, you, you need leaders that can kind of come in with different solutions and integrate the different sectors. Because a lot of people think public sector, private sector, well, look, it's just different entities. In entities, they have, they have different um, you know, legal accounts. They have legal uh, um, structures, right? There's 501c3, there's S-Core, C-Core. You know, there's different entities, but really it's all the same thing. It's people with some idea, with something that they're working on, whether it's a product or a service, and they either are trying to make some money or not make some money, but they're just functioning on some kind of work, some kind of labor and capital input, and their, their output is some result, whether it's a product or a service. Everything, every entity is like that. So why, why do we we're so divisive between public sector, private sector, and you know, some people are like, oh, that's privatization. What does that really mean? You're just allowing a different entity to do it, right? And, and let's talk about the real issues instead of having these knee-jerk reactions to some things are for the private sector and some things are for the public sector. They're for everyone. Everyone is in this society together. We need to be solving problems and not be reactionary to the solutions. There's a solution I'd like many people to be reactionary toward, <laughs> and that is traffic congestion yes. in Los Angeles. Just Getting to your lovely office, I was sitting in traffic, and I'm sure lots of people were too, and they're probably going further than I was. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, what can the government feasibly do to revamp public transit, let's just say in Los Angeles? Today, we can double the amount of bus lines if we really wanted to, if we opened it up to the private market. Today. Simple, again. So what's stopping us? It's that we're restrictive, and we're afraid of allowing the private market to exist to help our transportation needs. And then the longer term picture is how do you finance big infrastructure projects? We spend too much time lobbying Sacramento and Washington DC for federal and state monies to finance infrastructure projects instead of immediately going to the private sector and say, what would it take for you to invest in this? There's tons of capital out there across the country, around the world that would love investing in our infrastructure assets in Los Angeles. And we could create the structures for them to do that. It doesn't always have to be ownership. It could be at a long-term lease. It could be a bond. There's different ways to allow private capital to enter and help our infrastructure needs. On my platform included a big piece on mobility where I thought about infrastructure, not just necessarily I just wanted to build a new subway because <laughs> we can wait for a large 
subway, you know, and take 20 years. And then, you know, at the 20th year, the community hates it and doesn't want it. And, and it's a lot of effort. We'll be floating by then. Don't worry. We'll <laughs> exactly. all be hovering around. Exactly. Or, you know, you could expedite the hovering yeah. and figure out who's on the cutting edge of hovering. Or, you know, obviously I'm being yeah, a little yeah. facetious there. But, <laughs> but who's, who, who is creating new mobility options that people are willing to pay for? Because people already, it, a bus exists today, a bus line, and people ride it. That means someone's willing to pay for it. Why don't you create another bus line? Why don't you create three more? Why don't you allow the private sector to pay for some of it and you subsidize the rest as a public entity? That's what needs to be happening and it's not happening. And that's what our leaders, if they think, if, they're, if they stop thinking public versus private and think of, I just need capital from wherever it comes from to provide more mobility options then we're gonna be able to tackle more of these transportation, these traffic issues. So you're saying these issues can all work as long as everyone understands the rules of it going in. As long as like the public sector and private sector, whoever's teaming up as investors, they agree to certain things. That's the only thing that's standing in the way? Well, we have to be open to those private investors. Right now, a lot of our folks in City Hall are not open to it. All right, or they can't, they don't, they can't wrap their arms around what structure they would need so that there could be more private capital entry or private enterprise, doesn't just have to be private money, it could be enterprise, meaning a company, a bus company, a taxi company, a shuttle company. We need to open the, the market so that more of those mobility service providers can come into LA to provide those, those, those uh, to, to provide more of those mobility options for people. Maybe we'll get some double-decker buses from London. There Let's you go. Yeah. This one's same transportation idea, same pain. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever gotten a parking ticket? Because I've gotten a parking ticket, and they're very expensive. Yes. And I think Los Angeles has very expensive parking tickets. Why is that? How much should they really cost? What's well, it's it's a it's a symptom of the the lack of addressing the budget crisis. Our, there there's a part of the budget that over the last ten years has increased like sixfold, and that's our pension fund liabilities, paying down our pension fund, and we need to reform it. If we don't, then what politicians have been doing over the last few years especially have been looking at other ways to raise revenue that hurt the pocketbooks of everyday Angelinos. And that includes parking tickets, you know, and, and everyday parking tickets are, are not every day, but every every year as you revisit parking tickets or other types of other types of revenue generators that quite frankly when you raise a price it's a it's essentially a regressive tax because it hurts poor people the most. Someone that can pay forty dollars, you know, on the west side might be able to pay for it in a more e easier way than forty dollars on the east side. Um, so, so that is—it's a symptom of that. Um, look, there's no optimal parking ticket price, and, and yes, everyone would twenty-five want it, cents. Everyone would <laughs> want it to be lower. Uh, um, you know, on the flip side, you know, we could think about you know parking rates, and parking rates could increase, and that could actually incentivize public transportation or ma or mass transit. So there are other things that could be done, but right now we're just thinking in, in a very much like, oh, we need money, how can we get money? Here's a revenue drainer, how do we just jack up the price so we get more revenue? And it's just very short-sighted thinking, very piecemeal thinking, kicking the can on the road and on addressing the budget crisis. So last question, what's next for you? What do you do tonight, tomorrow? What's the next few That's months not, looking like? Well, look, in, the, like in, the next, in the next two months, it's, it's helping Eric Garcetti get elected as mayor. Well, thank you very much, Emmanuel Pleitez. We appreciate your time, and we wish you the best of luck along the way. Thank you.
right, that's our program. We want to thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. <coughs> Hello? Hey, guy from the apartment complex. How are you? How's your throat? <coughs> I just, I ate this uh, almond joy really fast. Oh, what a joy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I'm here. <laughs> well, you are the treat. You're the gift that keeps on giving. And you've been giving a lot of yourself and your time to the online world. What is your latest endeavor? Through the uh, cyberspace. Well, well, I recently have uh, have launched Brittle Caesar. Is is launching? What is this? A website? A blog? A... Uh, this is a Twitter handle. You can follow at at Brittle Caesars. At Brittle Caesars. That sounds a lot like a pizza chain. Yeah. Is that yeah, intentional? So, so I I love the hot and ready at Little Caesars. I think I've discussed that it is the ultimate value. Oh, okay. On this program before. Yes, it's it's close to the Chipotle axiom. Yes. Yes. Uh, and if you're like hungry and like super. Like don't have any money or you know you're going to be hungry for like 12 hours like i am a lot then a hot run is just what you need so what does at brittle caesars do so a lot of people complain about the quality of the hot and ready they say that it is a bad pizza and i imagine brittle caesars slash guy from the apartment complex disagrees with them yes yes and i think if anything like you're not going to little caesars because you think it's gonna be the best pizza and people going and complaining, like, I had to wait for a hot and ready, like, blah, blah, blah. And people, oh, the thing that really ticks me off is people hashtag, hashtag hot and ready for Krispy Kreme donuts all the time. Whoa, isn't hot and ready patented? I don't know, but I know hot now is what they really mean. And it's, <laughs> it's infuriating. But if you go on Twitter right now and search hot and ready, you'll see a fresh batch of morons who are talking about Krispy Kreme. How do you spell hot and ready? Like, it, it seems like we're not, we're missing the A and the D in the middle of word. H-O-T-A-N-D-R-E-A-D-Y. Okay, they're hot and ready. Hot and ready, yeah. Okay. Hot Mario Andretti. The plural of which is just an S after the Y. It's not I-E. Got it. Does at Brittle Caesars have a huge purpose above self? What is he doing? Is he just talking well, with people about hot and ready pizzas? Well, what I used to do is I used to go on the Little Caesars Twitter, and they handle all these like customer complaints. On Did that you Twitter. mean to say handle? Yeah, yeah. Yes. The handle handles. Yes. Um, My love handles. Oh. <laughs> so when the handles are handling the other handles' complaints... I can handle that. Uh, I would step in... And assault the person who was making the original complaint. I would tell them how much they suck for being <laughs> online and complaining to Little Caesars. And they're not just taking your pizza and going home. So you'd Twitter bomb these people. You'd complain them for complaining. Yes. I and, like this. And then I would retweet embarrassing things they've tweeted in the past. Like incorrect predictions of what would happen. <laughs> well, what would these people predict? How bold were they? Well, one guy was a big Romney supporter. And so I went back and retweeted all this stuff about how Romney's going to be president. <laughs> Do these people find it at all funny? Are they creeped out? What's the general reaction to Brittle Caesars, who you can follow at Brittle Caesars? Well, if people don't say anything, I just leave them alone. I just let them be, you know. Uh, but some people would engage and be like, no, like, F you. Like, you're terrible. You suck. Like, what is your Twitter doing? Other people totally got it. Some people were like, awesome. Like, a, a Twitter... <laughs> devoted to just defending little caesars <laughs> and what has little caesars said anything about it if anything little caesars has not said anything about it so they do not encourage nor discourage it right uh, well i know that they don't encourage me 
getting in the middle of their customer relations discussions. (laughs) Well, your relations have become rather public, but let's get back to further public relations. Tell me more about the public relations of $5 footlongs. While we're on the subject of food and getting bang for your buck, $5 for a hot and ready pizza. What do you think about $5 for a footlong? I I know you you have been a big fan of the $5 footlong in your life. I eat a lot of food, yes. Yeah. Uh, and the five dollar footlong used to be an absolute standard, mm-hmm. like a a golden rule that a footlong was five dollars. Why you would go to said subway? Yeah, and then that went away. Okay, fine. It was a promotion. I get it. And then February came along. It was like, okay, the shortest month of the year, I can get five dollar footlongs. Okay. February's when I'll have subway. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's roll. Let's play. Um, and then February became just like February, maybe. <laughs> like sometimes I go like some places like yeah turkey sub five bucks. Oh no, it's past three thirty and it's raining. <laughs> so you're saying these subways weren't consistent with their policy? No, they were not. They're turning into Quiznos. Take it back. I said it. Just what were those? What were those robots. animals? What were those animals? Those Quizno animals? Those little rats? Those little weird? If you're listening to this and have access to internet. <laughs> Look up Quizno Animal or Weird Quizno I Rodent. I the talking oven. Yeah, yeah. They were like weird little... The, uh, I don't remember the oven, though. Anyway, let's go from Quizno to Quiz Yes. Do you dislike Subway now for raising their prices? Yeah. That's what I'm getting. Yeah, yeah, I do. And it's, it's, it's garbage. Is there a chance you might take on a handle to attack Subway? No. Um, right now, if I was going to get a handle, it would be devoted exclusively to getting a free chicken little like just tweet whatever i need to do just gush about chicken littles on twitter until they gave me one free one you are the president of fast food nation it sounds like have you thought about running for office <laughs> well uh, i would I definitely would announce on twitter first break down your top five fast food chains does chipotle count as fast food yeah yeah I mean, Chipotle is there. Chipotle is the top of the totem pole. I, I don't. I don't want to put a hierarchy beyond Chipotle. Okay. The next are a soft four. Okay. A pool in the spirit of March. <laughs> uh, flame broiler. Yeah. Kinda, big fan. Kind of sneaking in there, but it's there. Because <laughs> they never pull this this gimmicky garbage. They're consistent. You like consistency. Subway. Yeah. Is a little Caesar's kind of fast food? Yeah, sure. And yes, definitely, absolutely. If it's ready, it's the fastest. Food. Yeah, and because it's not as good as Chipotle, it you know doesn't take the, the supreme spot. Right. Um, I have my moments where I like Carl's Jr. I'm not gonna lie. I've never met Carl Senior, but I bet it's okay. Starbucks, a Starbucks, a fast food chain. Sure. I, I, I guess I mean it's fa- that's, fast drinks. That's that's four. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. A soft four. It's a Rick Perry. <laughs> it's a Rick Perry five. Um. <laughs> It's a Jackson 5 cover band, the Rick Perry 5. <laughs> if only all of them were Rick Perry. Uh, <laughs> the Publix Deli, as any Floridian will tell you, the Publix Deli is the best place to go for all your fresh subs and fried chicken purposes. <laughs> the Publix Deli will be everyone's new deli. Let's stay on the track of Florida. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Let's stay on the track of Florida. Florida, am I saying that right? Yeah, that's that's it. What's going on in South Florida for hockey? Oh, for hockey? You've heard about the uh, realignment? Yeah. What's going on in hockey realignment? What's going on with the teams in Florida? It doesn't oh. look pretty. 
Well, the the, uh, the team in South Florida is terrible. I don't really like to talk about them. But <laughs> Hockey Realignment has put the Lightning... Listen, sports fans out The Tampa there, Bay Lightning. Listen to the Tampa Bay Lightning's new division. This is Lightning Radio. <laughs> the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Florida Panthers, so far so good, the Boston Bruins, huh, <laughs> Buffalo Sabres, wait, wait, what? The Ottawa Senators? The Montreal Canadiens? Are you the saying Toronto it's a little Maple Leafs? It's a little north for your liking. You're getting a nosebleed just listing these things. The Detroit Red Wings in it too. Like that's that's the true like, like oh yeah. Those are blue blood teams. Well, they're blue blood teams. Also, they're much better than <laughs> the bottom feeders the Lightning have been able to play against for the past decade. But there's algae there. There's algae to be had, right? I, I think we are the algae in this hierarchy. Well, Algernon. Is there any hope for the Tampa Bay Lightning this season? In a shortened season, is there any way they can turn it around? I would, I would hate to say so, because I know if I did, that wouldn't happen. Speaking about things that are hard to believe and you can't believe they happened... Ten years of war in Iraq. We could say that, <laughs> but I was going to go with this story about a man pretending to be a goat in Utah. Could you tell us a little more about that? Have you heard this? Uh, not really. I heard you talking about it in the parking lot, and I wanted to know more. <laughs> there's, there's this, uh, this man... He's pretending to be a goat in Utah. Uh, I had that. I had that much. So this hiker is out and sees wild goats in Utah. I didn't know there were wild goats. Apparently there are. And whenever I saw like pictures of goats in the wild, I thought like there was a herder somewhere. Anyway, I didn't know there were wild goats. Hiker sees this group of wild goats. <laughs> and this guy in all white climbing around on his hands and knees. And he's been reported all across the countryside. Like multiple hikers have said like, yeah, I saw... A herd of goats and one dude like climbing over rocks and stuff like going up a mountain on his hands and knees pretending to be a goat do we know if he's like eating with them not i'm not gonna suggest anything else but like is he eating he, he has been spotted eating grass with them how is he surviving i don't know i i don't know also in the picture is there a herder so... is there a herder for the other goat like is there is he part of a group is anyone hurting him i wonder if he is hurting them as a goat. And we mean hurting, not hurting. He's not hurting the goats. He's an innocent man just being kind of kooky. Yeah. I hadn't had the thought that he might be hurting them until just now. Which I guess would have been more logical. Yeah, it's not a bad thought. Botany. <laughs> Alright, that's our program. We want to thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We want to take this moment to thank our guests. Thanks to Emmanuel Fletes, guy from the apartment complex. Special thanks to Sammy J for the rhythms. Thanks to Bob, as always. Thank you, Trent. You'll see us next time, or you'll hear us next time, on TP with TP. That's the podcast with Tom Polos. There's always more at thepolosgrounds.com. Happy New Year's.